This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide. Okay, welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average podcast. This week on the show we've got Joe Meenan, one of the 61 survivors of the Piper Alpha accident and a safety impact speaker. Joe, if you just want to introduce yourself. Hello there, uh, my name's Joe Meenan. Uh, I'm one of the 61 survivors from the Piper Alpha, uh, living up in Stonehaven, just south of Aberdeen. Uh, I do a bit of work, uh, present my Piper Alpha story to whoever's interested, and it's been quite an eye-opener for myself. And I've found it very, uh, very good for myself to get this out. And I've had a lot of great response as well. And we spoke a little bit earlier on about the format of the podcast, Joe. We're just going to go right back to the start, starting where you grew up and tell us a bit about your background. No problem. I was born in Glasgow, 1958. Uh, stayed in Glasgow in Brighton in Glasgow till I was seven years old and uh, my sister came along at that time so we had to, well I think the plan was always to move out of Glasgow, the slums in there. Uh, so I family moved up to East Kilbride, got a brand new house uh, called the Wood East Kilbride and we stayed there for the next uh, 11 years or so. Uh, went to St Bride's School in East Kilbride. East Kilbride was a great time. Loved my football in East Kilbride. Uh, made a lot of good friends there. But it was it was great till I got to about 16, 17 and unfortunately in Glasgow and East Kilbride and surrounding areas there was a lot of young teenage troubles going on at that time and uh, uh, I left school at 16, uh, which was Christmas time, because you, you could leave school uh, either Christmas or summertime as soon as you were 16. Uh, and I actually got a job with Wiseman's Dairies. Uh, I was working for them before I left school, and that carried on for a couple of years. Uh, as I said, East Kilbride was a bit of a troubled place. and. I met up with a guy through some other guys I know that had been in Jersey and worked the summer season over there. So that year in uh, 1977, I went over to Jersey and had a couple of years over there working over there, which was great fun and I started uh, some travelling adventures I had over the years. What did you do in Jersey, Joe? I first went over, got a job. Just labouring really, landscape gardening, and I got a job in a potato canning factory, which canned the potatoes, the Jersey potatoes, uh, which was good, good for, well, it was all right, like, you know, and then I eventually got a job uh, for driving, delivering uh, plant hire stuff around about the island, which was great, because I'd seen a lot of the different parts of the island, and Jersey was all kind of a tax haven. It always has been a bit of a tax haven. Yeah. And it was some uh, lovely 
houses I had to deliver stuff to, whether we're getting extensions built or swimming pools built and stuff like that. So yeah, and great time in the summer because you could get to the beach and just, it was totally different to East Bride because everybody was just so friendly. And I've still got friends for there I keep in touch with and it was great fun. Uh -huh. And then you came back from Jersey, um, Late 70s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, late, well, in the summer of 78, I broke my leg playing football, ironically. And I kind of lost my job through that. There's no really any social security stuff there. The football team looked after me for a short time, plus a bit of insurance money. But when I was over in Jersey, my mum and dad moved up to Stonehaven, where we are nowadays. And uh, my dad had started work up in Sullenbo. Uh, they were building an oil terminal up there. So that was, uh, he started in 78. So he told me he could get me a job up there as a trainee scaffolder. Uh, gave me an idea of how much money they were making up there. It was a bit of a change from one end of the Britain to the other end of the yeah. But uh, it worked out fine. I, I learned my trade as a scaffolder up there. I spent three and a half years up there before I went offshore in 1982. 82 yeah. So you started offshore scaffolding 82. What platforms did you go to to start out with? I'd I, I done my first trip on the Dunlin Alpha, which was only two two week trip. And then I... Uh, it was a shell platform, and then I moved to the Brent Delta and spent most of my time there before uh, I just moved a bit to North Sea with different, different, uh, well, it was much the same oil, uh, same scaffolding company, but we worked for different uh, contracts, you know, in the North Sea. Uh, I worked on the Ninian, all the platforms on the Ninian field. A uh, couple of platforms on the 40s field, uh, the Bray Alpha, and eventually ended up in Piper Alpha uh, on March. First trip was March uh, 1988. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you started in March 1988, and then the accident with Piper Alpha happened in the July, so you were only on there a few months. Yeah, well, that was my fifth trip. Yeah, yeah. Must have been early March I started. So, time July came around, two weeks on, two weeks off. That was my, my fifth trip. Uh, and didn't know too much about Piper Alpha before I went. Uh, wasn't the biggest of platforms, but then soon found out how much uh, oil it was producing. It was, it had a nickname as the as the monster i believe you know because it was it was producing so much oil mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, it was wasn't it wasn't the worst platform i've been on for as in accommodation and food uh the guys that worked there wasn't a bad crack morale was okay but the north sea was Kinda, they were squeezing the North Sea at the time in the, the mid to late 80s and uh, in April 88 we found out there was a new maintenance contractor coming in, taking over in, towards the end of April I think it was. Mm -hmm. And we were 
we were told that we would all be keeping our jobs if we wanted them. The only thing it would be that we'd have to uh, take a pay cut from 5.20 an hour to 4.90 an hour. And uh, yeah, that was a bit of a blow. Uh, but like I say, the North Sea was getting squeezed from all directions. Oil price had taken a big hit in 86. And uh, things were getting squeezed in all all directions. Similar to what's happening at the moment with the COVID-19 situation, that the oil prices dropped quite significantly, and the pressure's on now that they're not making the same amount of money out of a barrel of oil. No, I think that's correct, but I don't think there's the same pressure from, you know, the authorities or the government to to uh, you know keep the money coming in i think uh, in the 80s after the miners strike and everything and all the turmoil that went on at the time the the, the coffers that the government had you know the, they were they were treasury was a bit short of cash so they were keen to keep them the oil revenue coming in as well you know so there was a lot of pressure from both the government and the oil companies, which I think suited Occidental just down to the ground, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you went offshore, you've been working in the, the industry for a while. What kind of training did you get in the lead up to that, Joe, before you, you went offshore? Well, as as required in legislation, I'd done my uh, offshore survival course, which was done at Robert Gordon's University, was doing it at that time. Uh, so I done my week survival course then. Mm-hmm. Uh, any of the other well platforms you go on, if it's your first time on a platform, you get an induction. Uh, some of them will show you a way, you know, give you a wee tour of the platform, give you a general idea. But mostly it was left up to the guys you worked with who kept you right and pointed you in the right direction. But you did get a, an induction. Sometimes we'd have safety meetings on some of the other platforms. Chevron was quite good with that, and BP on the 40s were, were reasonably good with that. But how superficial it was, I'm not sure, but, you know, you had the opportunity to say things and bring things up, but how far it went above that, I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. And there was obviously a culture of cutbacks at the time, they were giving everybody a wage cut, so a lot of people would have been potentially in fear for their job. So speaking up maybe wouldn't have been the top of everyone's priority. Yeah, yeah, that's like where and I say the, the the pay cut that came along affected morale more in the working side of things. I mean, we still had a bit of a crack going on the platform, but mostly, you know, work related, you're not gonna slog your guts out for Four pound ninety an hour, and we were at the lower end of the pay scale when it, you know, went up with the different trades. You know, yeah. uh, us and the painters, I think, were around about the same, same level of pay. Uh, so yeah, it, 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 certainly work-wise, it affected morale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we move on to talk about the events in July, then can you tell us a bit, a bit about how your trip started out first of all? and then talk us through the trip up to the time of the incident. Yeah, well, it went off in uh, end of June there, you know, and 
things just kind of progressed as they normally would. You know, you're on a bit, a bit of a downer when you go offshore at first. Your crew change day was a Friday. So after the first weekend's pass, you're kind of broke the back of it then. You know, that's that was my the way I looked at it, you know. So uh, only one more weekend to go and then you're, you're on, you know, you're, few days to get home, you know, so everything was just going as normal, but we did, you know, obviously taking on as normal. There was an awful lot of work going on in the platform at the time. Knew this, uh, the Tharas, which was accommodation, uh, bars, plus firefighting, uh, semi-submersible as well. Uh, so there was a lot of work going on. We were working let's say 15 hours a day which was a bit of normal shift for us but we were up manning we moved up from uh, nine scaffolders to 15 and then 18 and then it was good another three guys arrived on the platform that day so they were pushing to get all the work done or get it all finished as quick as possible so if we start to progress then into the, the actual incident joe if you want to talk us through it yeah, yeah. Well, on the day we'd finished our 15-hour shift and uh, we knew three guys, I, well, two other guys I worked with, three in a squad, uh, we were all in the same cabin. Uh, one of the other guys, it was a four-man uh, cabin. So a couple of boys nipped away early to get a quick shower, you know, quarter to nine or whatever. We had decided we were all going up to watch a movie. It was Caddyshack on that night. It was, we just, we only had one more shift to do after uh, that shift finished. That was a Wednesday. We'd, we'd be working a Friday, uh, the Thursday and then going home on a Friday. So, so people, people are everybody happy. All want to get home. Yes. I uh, just, you know, ready for getting home. Uh, somebody went up and got cans of coke and juice or whatever and some Mars bars and stuff like that. So we headed up to the cinema. And it was Caddyshack, like I say, it was on that night, a comedy, so a light relief for us all. We were all in the cinema. And the cinema was quite busy that night because it was a decent movie. Maybe 30-odd people in there. And... 10 to 10 to 10, 5 to 10, uh, we could hear some strange noise from outside. And we believe it was the flare booms uh, and they were uh, uh, they were flaring uh, excess gases off. That's what, you know, somebody said in the, the cinema, but, you know, we'd never really heard that before. Then it seemed to uh, quiet down again everybody a bit of chit-chat rumbling in the cinema and uh, a bit of laughter. Yeah, about an hour, two or three minutes, it flipped, no, it came up again. Really high-pitched noises, uh, real high-pitched whistle. Mm-hmm. And you, could, you know, you, you could sense there was power in there, you know. Bang, there was a huge explosion. Whole platform dropped back forward. Part of the roof of the cinema fell in. There was initial panic in the cinema. People just desperate to get out. But then it it calmed down a bit. But what we didn't know once we got out, well, we 
got into the accommodation, the main uh, accommodation area, as you might, you'll see a photograph there of explosion which occurred in module C, which was gas conversion module. An explosion was that powerful. It knocked debris through firewalls that separated module C and B. Mm-hmm. Module B was crude oil pipes uh, that you know took the oil from Tartan and Claymore, and uh, from the oil it was being drilled on paper as well. So that fractured them some of them oil pipes, which led to intensifying the fire and the black oil smoke that you can see on the on the photograph. Also, the initial explosion uh, destroyed the control room, which was just slightly, well, it was up, up above module C, but it was above module D, and uh, it, it was in between module C and D, and, uh, it, it, you know, it can, but nobody knew that, nobody knew it destroyed the control room. So once we got into the accommodation, there was still emergency lighting going on, but there'd be no tannoys, no uh, alarms went off or anything, which was very, very unusual. No uh, call to go to muster stations or anything like that. But most of the guys kind of back and forward and made their way down. We thought we'd maybe try and make our way to the lifeboats, but other guys that had been down there coming back saying you can't get out that door there's too much fire and smoke out that door try to go over to the east side of the platform couldn't couldn't go over that way same same the guys were saying so eventually just simply uh, elevate up into the galley and when you do your survival courses you're always told your your first ma- uh, method of evacuation be by helicopter but when I got up to the, the galley, which was just below the heli deck, there was uh, maybe a hundred odd guys in there. Emergency lighting was still on at the time, but the smoke was getting more intense. Uh, it was very quiet in the dining room, although there was a hundred odd guys there, just kind of sitting around the floor. Uh, not much can said, but then someday, the OIM and the safety officer was in the in the galley also and somebody mm-hmm. shouted at him can you tell us what's happening let us what what is what have we got to do because i say there'd be no tannoys no alarms the uh, oim who i don't hold responsible at all for this because he was out his depth we were all out our depth but he he'd said that there'd been a mayday sent out which we found out afterwards there had been a mayday sent out from the radio room, but he said there would be helicopters there within the hour to to rescue us. But he didn't know the situation outside. We didn't know the situation outside. Also, just a couple of minutes later, or a minute or so later, I heard somebody else coming in because I'd get separated from all the guys I was way in the cinema at that point. Yeah. Is there anybody here from Bowdoin, which was the... Uh, drilling contractor mm-hmm. uh, on the platform and somebody shouted so I thought oh, I'll shout is there any scaffolders here and the guys that were 
has shared the carbon way in that and some other the scaffolders were round at the back entrance of the galley in the kitchen area where the, the chefs and cooks would bring their supplies in. It was a back door there. Went round there, they were all sitting on the floor with uh, dish towels, wet dish towels over their, over their mouths. Uh, they told me to go and get a dish towel. They're up there on the sink. Went up, turned the tap on, no water. But there was water uh, lying at the bottom of the sink. So soap to the dish towel got back. The, 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 uh, the smoke was getting more intense by that point. This was maybe just 10 past, 12 minutes past 10 at the time. So sat there for a few minutes, asked what was going on, uh, if anybody had heard anything. Said no. Well, they said there'd been a couple of the, the firefighting team up at the back door with the breathing apparatus on. Uh, they had decided to go down and they said they'd go and try and find out what was happening and come back and let us know. But after two or three minutes, nothing. The guys weren't coming back. Uh, the smoke was getting more intense. You could hear other small explosions happening. You could hear windows breaking, the emergency lighting had gone off. So we thought, well, if we stay in here and anything else happens, we're not going to be in any uh, any area where we could be do anything for ourselves and we'd be stuck inside. Yeah. Uh, so we decided, why don't we go up on the holiday and we'll maybe get a better idea of what's happening. So there was about 18 years sitting around in that area. Yeah. So we decided, right, let's go. And we, as we were leaving, it was about 12, 12, 13 years decided to go. Just as we were leaving, I was last to leave, and there was an R6 guys there who we had done some work for. They were working for a communication company. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as leaving, I asked them, you guys not coming with us? And they, they kind of looked at each other and they said, uh, no, no, we're just going to stay. We've been told to stay. So left them guys there. We got up on the helideck. There's a, there was a container, a converted container up there, which was converted to the radio room and the helideck landing officer's room where the guys would uh, work on the choppers and, you know, when the choppers come in with any crew on and crew changed and that. Uh, so we got up on top of there because that was the highest point we could get in that area. Yeah. The black smoke that you might see in the photograph along there with the oil really uh, fire, uh, that, was, that was choking us, but it was coming across in layers so we could get up and get some breaths of fresh air as it came across. Yeah, above it. Yeah. Uh, also, the Tharos had been moving a bit closer, and they had a water cannon on top of one of their crane jibs, and that was actually fanning back and forward. So they were catching that water as well, uh, as a lot of us were just in our uh, evening clothes, you know, no, no overalls on or survival suits on or anything like that. It was, you know, just felt great, you know, just a cold shower if you've come off the beach when you've spent been under the sun too much, you know, and you 
it was just a huge relief. And it, it really helped me later on, I believe. Uh, the clothes were all wet. But, so we thought, well, the Tharas is coming a bit closer. Maybe we could go over to the west side of the platform because it, it, the Piper had an emergency heli deck as well. So it was like a double heli deck on top there. So we could get right over to the west side of the platform. So the crowd has went down 12, 13 years. And just as we got over to the west side of the platform, the uh, the gas riser from the tartan platform fractured and it just engulfed the platform. Uh, you can see that video on YouTube or whatever. Uh, and at that point, it just didn't know what had happened. You just knew something horrendous had happened. Uh, I myself ran across the heli deck and went across and there was a radio mast there. And I climbed onto the radio mast and I started climbing up the radio mast. Uh, I think it was just through panic, but I didn't feel as if I was panicking, just but uh, as the higher I got up, the more uh, the uh, intensity of the heat I could feel. Mm-hmm. And then I slipped and then I just thought at that point, I just thought to myself, that's it, I'm dead here. And then I don't know what came over me. Uh, it was for something above or just will to survive. Uh, but some came and took over exactly what I was doing. So I came down the ladder on a level below the heli deck, run along to the steps where you would walk on the heli deck if you were uh, crew changing on the platform, run across the north side of the heli deck on the north side of the platform. Had a look over, I could see some water through the flames and smoke. And by this time I had a life jacket on, took the life jacket off, threw it in in front of me, took a bit of a run and there's there's safety netting around the heli deck and the supports on the safety net. I used them to propel myself off as far as I could. I knew exactly what I was doing, but it was still as if something was making me do what I was doing. I wasn't in control of what I was doing, although I knew exactly what I was doing. And once I'd thrown myself off and I knew I had to get as far out as I could from the platform, uh, as if I just came back to myself. And I just the first thing that came into my head was I just thought, what the fuck have I done? And then not... No, I felt nothing again after that till I hit the water, which was roughly about six seconds it took to, to cover that distance, which was 175 feet. Hit the water, knew I'd hit the water. Don't know how far I went down, but it was uh, quite a bit. Managed to get back up as quick as I could, back up to the surface. A lot of debris in the water. Uh, there'd been a lot of uh, lifeboats and loose impediments that had been blown off the platform and that second explosion happened. But luckily for me, I missed what, everything that was there. But I managed to get a hold of a life jacket again, which I presume was a life jacket I'd thrown in in front of me. Because it was one of these actually lovely summer nights and you get in the North Sea 
and the sea was quite calm. Had a lot of, maybe half a metre swell, and it was the sea was running from south to north that night, so it was taking me away from the platform. So I also got my arm wedged in, uh, which I found out was part of a roof of a life lifeboat had been blown off. So I just started propelling myself away from the platform. And then I could see a lifeboat, which was part of this roof of the, uh, the lifeboat I had my arm wedged in. So I disregarded the stuff I had, swam over to this uh, lifeboat that was floating in water, got across to that. It was There was still a bit of fire going on in it. Say mm -hmm. half the roof of it was missing. But after a minute or so, I managed to clip, climb up, pull myself up into the lifeboat. And that's when I looked back at the platform and I was just trying to take in what I was, you know, seeing, you know, it was just, just it was flames from the sea surface to hundreds of feet up in the air, you know, and just more and more explosions. At that, that point, I noticed, because I only had a, a polo shirt on that night, that I noticed that I had huge blisters on my arms. Couldn't quite figure out what the reason was for that. Didn't feel any pain or anything at that point. Uh, I just I just didn't realise what 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 the uh, blisters were there for. Mm -hmm. At that point, I heard a fast rescue craft, which uh, had come from one of the supply boats. Uh, I went and waved them down, although I believe they were coming towards the lifeboat anyway. Uh, they got me into the into the fast rescue craft and uh, they asked me if there was anybody else that was uh, in the lifeboat. I said no. They lay me down the side of the, the, the inflatable boat, you know, and uh, that's actually, I kind of knew I was safe then and I kind of started going in and out of consciousness then. And he started taking effect on me. Adrenaline had uh, came down. Yeah. And he took me back to the supply boat, their supply boat, which I think was one of the Merce boats. Uh, and I remember just bits and pieces from then on. I remember them winching me. He must have got me into a stretcher, winched me onto the, onto the supply boat. And I don't mind much about being on a supply boat. Yeah, I do mind the cranes, the the lights from the crane, from the Tharos when they they were uh, take me, transfer me onto the Tharos from the, the supply boat. Mm -hmm. Remember getting into the hospital on the on the Tharos. The medical staff had arrived uh, from some other platforms or rigs in the area, and possibly the guys, the doctors from Aberdeen as well. I just remember, I think I was I was going into shock at that time. And I remember them saying, just give me a shot of morphine. And I got a shot of morphine uh, at that point. And, uh, it was strong stuff, that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Rest. And then from there, you were evacuated from the Tharos by helicopter the hospital in Aberdeen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there is a... A photograph there also when uh, I, I got arrived back in Aberdeen and uh, 
I think it was a Royal Navy helicopter I took me back. I remember getting into the ARI. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of bodies, people. I had nurses, doctors, just seemed to be organised chaos, but I'm sure they knew what they were doing, you know, and uh, uh, kind of mind bits and pieces through that. And I remember being up in the ward. It was just a two-man ward where ended up just myself and Roy Carey, another survivor was in there. But they told me that my mum had been notified that uh, I was a Piper Alpha survivor and uh, they were on their way in because Stonehaven's only 15 miles or so from from Aberdeen. So uh, I just kept myself going till, uh, till they came in and I seen them, you know, and uh, in the next few days, three, four or five days was a bit of a blur back forward, you know, but... Uh, you own quite a lot of heavy painkillers and stuff like that, Joe. Yeah, yeah, I had an intravenous painkiller. Uh, it was on the drip, on oxygen, uh, catheter in. Yeah, I had a nurse uh, by my bed at night for the first three nights, 72 hours, well, over the evening periods, you know. There was a nurse just stationed at the bedside, you know, so it must have maybe still been a wee bit touch and go then, although, uh, you know, you don't realise you What well, was the extent of your injuries, Joe? Uh, you were quite badly, badly burned. Yes. Yeah, it mostly, uh, yeah, the burns, uh, which I had to get skin grafts. I was told they were full thickness burns, which I believe was down to the flesh. They, uh, they just took the skin off down to there and, uh, the donor areas were from both my legs. Uh, they took the skin for there so they could put it on uh, onto my arms. Uh, I had superficial burns to my face and my head. Uh, black and blue from head to toe from the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never broke anything. They thought I maybe uh, dislocated my shoulder and it maybe popped back in again. But, uh, no, no, yeah, no, uh, no just break. Just context, for anybody that's from Glasgow, the Finiston Crane is 175 feet tall, the same height as the heli deck. So it was like jumping from the top of the Finiston Crane into the yeah. sea. It's one of the tallest structures along the waterfront and on the Clyde. Yeah, uh, well, we were, it's, it's hard to kind of exactly know what speed it was, but we were told, you know, it'd be, between 60 and 70 mile an hour, I've heard different, different stories about that, but uh, I don't know, it doesn't matter too much to me at the end of the day, yeah. I'm still here, but uh, I know a lot of the other guys who jumped from the heli deck and the post-mortems afterwards, you know, they'd broken pelvises, broken arms, broken legs, uh, injury, head injuries, you know, which, and then maybe ultimately drowned in that case, you know, uh, yeah, so I don't know how we were lucky enough to get away with that, because out of the 12 guys, 12, 13 years that went up on the helideck, I know, only know there was three of us that survived from that area, I don't know if everybody went off the helideck, but there was only three of us that, that survived that, 
Yeah, the injuries, the, the burns, uh, couldn't quite work out well. That, that had uh, happened, but after speaking to the surgeons and doctors, and we went through what happened, you know, the, the story or you know, how we how we got to where we were. The, the surgeon says probably during during the fall, and uh, it was heat radiation, and that's because I had a short sleeve t-shirt on, mm -hmm. and my skin was ex exposed. But I do believe if it wasn't for the water we got soaked from from the the fire hose of the Tharos, burns could have possibly have been a lot worse if my clothes had been dry at that time. You know, so that was a wee blessing, uh, uh, you know, uh, small mercy and a bigger picture, you know. Uh, the photograph yeah. that we're going to show, George, is a, a documented photograph of you in the hospital with your injuries that a newspaper reporter managed to get into the ward that you were on and take a picture for the for the paper. Um, so we'll put that up on the screen and let everybody see that. Um, and it's probably one of the only records of people in the hospital from the Piper Alpha disaster, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think there was some of the the, the uh, TV people. I think they were, they were in another part of the hospital, in our in our ward in the Burns Burns uh, ward, where in, uh, Thatcher and Hammer came to visit some of the survivors in uh, another part of the the Burns unit in uh, Aberdeen, so it was, it was a wee bit of that and the uh, documentary fire on the night that uh, was all in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what happened after that then, Joe? Uh, you were probably in hospital for a while after that, maybe six months? No, it was, it was uh, two and a half months or so, you know. Well, sorry. Yeah, about six, seven weeks and then... Uh, I got out of hospital, but I was traveling back and forward kind of every day to start with for a week or so, and then every other day, and then it went down to three days, you know, every third day, you know, and uh, just to get dresses changed and just make sure there was no infection around like that and everything was okay in that sense, you know. Uh, then I had to go myself to get physiotherapy after that because... Seemingly your skin shrinks, you know, when you, you take the skin off your legs and then put on your arms. So I had to get some of my mobility back in my arms and my joints and my wrists and my fingers and that, you know. And anybody that's been through a major injury, they, you know, some of the hardest part of it is your rehabilitation and your, your physiotherapy you've got to go through. You know, it's uh, that can be painful and there wasn't any painkillers taken at that time either, you know, so, yeah. So all in all, it took a good year and a half to two years, I would say, you know, to get through everything. Uh, part of the cosmetic part of the the injuries as well, or treatment was they, they, uh, they made these pressure garments for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just like sleeves on my arms and I had gloves for my hands and they were really, really tight and this was to stop the scarring, you know, mm -hmm. put pressure on your skin to, you know, even it out a bit more. Uh, so I was wearing, in the summertime, wearing gloves and stuff like that, you know, so that went on for about two years. 
So, uh, yeah, it was all, all something you just had to get through and, you know, get on with. And it have been really difficult mentally after that as well, Joe. What support did you get mentally? Um, did you get any counselling or any support from uh, the company that you worked for, the oil company that you were contracted to, or from the NHS? Yeah, the, the NHS was very good. In, in Aberdeen, they, they uh, had a professor, David Alexander, who was one of the top uh, top psychological professors in the country. It just so happened he was based in Aberdeen. Uh, and he set up a lot of good support and come and spoke to a lot of his, uh, the the uh, the hospital had put people in touch with with us as well, and social workers. They set up a, a survivors uh, support group in Aberdeen, which I think was on a Tuesday and a Thursday night. And uh, yeah, I think that helped a lot of the people. You know, a lot of the survivors it helped him an awful lot. But it didn't really work for me. The survivors group. Uh, I don't know if it was because a lot of these guys hadn't got injuries. Uh, they got off the platform quite early, which was really good for them. But uh, he, he had more of a guilt complex, uh, which is perfectly understandable. Yeah. It's a sad reflection in a lot of these disasters you hear about, you know, and people do have survivor, survival guilt. And uh, it's a tough thing to cope with as well, you know. So, uh, but yeah, the, the, you know, the, we weren't short. Mostly from Aberdeen Hospital, the NHS, and uh, Aberdeen Aberdeen Council. You know? mm. No, 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 such. A, there wasn't so much came from Occidental. I think once they got through their initial. Uh, Week, couple of weeks after the after the disaster, then they were wanting to kind of no wash their hands, but they kept a distance from it. Whether it was you know a decision that was made higher up to do that, I'm not you know. The yeah. owner of Occidental, the owner of Piper Alpha, Armin Tamer, flew into the UK, didn't he? He flew into London just after the incident and yeah. went to the Houses of Parliament to meet with Margaret Thatcher before travelling to Aberdeen to meet somebody injured and then left the UK and never returned. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, uh, there's a couple of strange stories about that because uh, both the government and uh, Occidental Hammer put a million pound in each to a disaster fund, which I'd never heard of before. If you think about in the 80s, all the disasters that happened at the time, and the first one I kind of really remember was the Bradford, uh, the fire in the Bradford stand. Yeah. And then you you, you had Zabruga, you had King's Cross, you had, uh, you know, there's a number of things went on. That's the, the century of disaster, didn't they? Yeah. And you had Hillsborough in 89 and that as well, you know. There was so much things going on at the time, but I'd never ever heard a, you know, a government putting a million pound in a disaster fund. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, it helped a lot of people out in Italy, I presume, you know, but... Uh, so there was a big government inquiry after Piper Alpha into the incident called the Cullen Inquiry. And we spoke a little bit earlier on off camera about the Cullen Inquiry and the involvement in it. Do you want to tell us a story about that, Joe? Yes. Well, I I was uh, I started going from the start because I really wanted to know what had happened, you know. But it was actually on the other side of Aberdeen for me. At that time, I couldn't. I was wasn't able to drive because I was still bandaged up and everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had to get the bus over. So it was a bit of bit of travel for me. So how quickly did that start, Joe? After Fever Alpha? Uh, it was in November afterwards. Uh, it wasn't long and uh, we were so lucky it was Lord Cullen who got put in, in charge to do you know, chair inquiry and that because at the end of the day he'd done a, a, a fantastic job as far as I could see and left no stone unturned uh, and absolutely slated Occidental, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the government to a certain extent, you know, and uh, it's all ready, like available. If you know people are interested in going and reading, there's a short version of his the Cullen report, you know, and uh, yeah, he didn't mess about. But to be fair to all the oil companies and the government at the time, he took on board all the recommendations. Uh, it was 106 recommendations. They were fully implemented, and uh, most important one was taking the the uh, the responsibility for health and safety away from it was with the Department of Energy at the time, which had a conflict of interest and was uh, the HSC was put in charge of the, the, the overseeing of the, the oil industry in the North Sea, which was a, was a great thing. Uh, we all had to go and give our evidence, all the survivors, whether how unimportant or important you were, which position you had on the platform, but we all had to go and do a wee bit, which was a bit stressful because there was like, I think it was about 10 sets of solicitors and secretaries and stuff and representing all the different contractors on the platform and then obviously Occidental's uh, solicitors and representatives as well, you know, so. There's a bit of daunting TV cameras there and news. It was all the news and at that time, you know. And quite quickly after you'd been through your horrific injuries, you were still recovering at the time and then having to go to court to give give evidence and quite a big trial. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. Some, well, you, you don't really expect to have to go through and you're, you know, through a work accident or incident or whatever you know uh, yeah it was uh, it was quite daunting same as when we had to go through our own personal injury claims you know it was it was quite daunting we were put to so many uh, medical examinations and psychological examinations as well for both sides you know but, but we got through all that we had to get through that you know it was uh, Unfortunately, it's just one of these things you you have to, you know, make yourself get through it for your own benefit. Mm -hmm. So 
so quite a traumatic time in your life, Joe. And then after that, what did you what did you do after all of that had occurred? Well, I decided I was never going to go offshore again. Uh, but what what I had what I done I'd done a fair bit of travelling, and whether it was subconsciously or not, I got myself away from Aberdeen. I had family in Australia, and I had family in Zimbabwe and Africa as well. So. I had a six-month trip away in '91. Uh, that would have been. I think I went away in '90 and through '91. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was it was probably beneficial for myself to get away from from Aberdeen. So I'd done a bit of travelling for a few years, mm-hmm. and eventually, when I did come back to to Stonehaven, uh, I packed forward a few different trips. Uh, and it was time to settle down again. Uh, some friends of mine had opened a hotel or taken over a hotel and refurbished it, and uh, it was doing quite well. So I just started working in the bar in there, which was was good. It was good fun. Uh, and it was a kind of family business they'd set up, but unfortunately for them, they had a bit of a family bust up. So. It ended up I took over a share in the hotel and we ran that for about eight years, which was good fun. It was really, really good. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it, learned about that. Uh, they decided they had had enough of it, so I had bought them out eventually. But I found it just a wee bit too much to run a hotel myself and uh, sold it up. Uh, managed to, to get it moved on from uh, people, you know. So uh, I had a bit of a break for a year or so. And then there was a pub in Stonehaven that came up for sale in uh, 2002. So I got myself in there and, and bought the pub in there and uh, kept that for, for seven years or so, you know. So And eventually sold that uh, uh, Bellhaven and they come in and they bought it off me. Uh, I leased it back for a couple of years, but I decided it wasn't working. I'd had enough. And, uh, since then, I've just been doing bits and pieces up until a couple of years ago. When, uh, when actually, well, in 2017, mm-hmm. And this was really relevant to me. I came down in the morning. Uh, it was the 14th of the 6th, 17, and switched the telly on and seen the pictures from Grenfell Tower. And it just really hit me quite hard, that. And there's a silhouette picture of Grenfell with the black smoke coming out, yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, God, that reminded me so much. Though it was so different, it reminded me so much of Piper Alpha. And um, when you heard the stories about how people escaped and how they were told to stay in their accommodation and some people ignored that advice, and, you know, and they got out, you know. Some people ignored the right advice as well and probably never got out, you know. Yeah. And then you hear about all the stories about the people who had been complaining about the safety, you know, uh, how they were ignored with their safety pleas over the years, you know, and, uh, then they all come out about the the clad that was on the thing and 
it'll be really interesting to see how that public inquiry comes out in the end, you know, and uh, whether it gets as forthright as Lord Collins' uh, inquiry was at the end, you know. So there was certainly people that should be held accountable there as well, you know. And is that one of the driving things that's got you into speaking as a safety impact speaker then, Joe, seeing that incident and that bringing back the memories of Piper Alpha? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I, I hadn't really thought about it at that time, but then uh, for the 30th anniversary, I'd done a little bit for Grampian TV uh, and done an interview. And through a friend, a friend uh, whose brother had 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 a bad accident, uh, a bad fall in Paisley. Uh, she told me that he'd, you know, this is what he'd done for a, a living now uh, as a safety uh, safety speaker, you know, and uh, motivator, and uh, put me in contact with Gary and uh, myself and Gary, Gary Moore and me, put a PowerPoint presentation together for me and I've went out and put it forward and had quite a bit of interest, mostly from oil companies, but I did do one for Tenants Caledonian earlier this year mm-hmm. uh, on their safety, safety day. They had uh, four different things going on at the same time, but I was part of it, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting and great to meet so many different people and, you know, just quite uh, quite enthused by everybody at the way you know these companies take you in and you know their safety uh, culture and promotion is seems to me to be all going in the right direction yeah uh, I'm sure there's other companies out there that, that you know if they don't have you coming you know there, there must be some ones that aren't so good now you know but Hopefully, you know. The yes. ones that you're getting with you are definitely doing a good job. Yes. And that brings us on to Joe. You come highly recommended from the Safer Than Your Average podcast. Joe's story, uh, we've only just scratched the surface with it. You can go into a lot of detail about it. And if you want to get in touch with Joe, I'll put his LinkedIn address and his email in the links for the podcast to let you get in touch with him if you want to bring him in to do a talk with your operatives. And what a powerful story it is for the operatives as well. So... I just want to sum up there, Joe. Thank you very much for getting involved in the podcast. You're one of the bravest guys I've ever spoken to after coming through all of the experiences that you've had. Um, a question that I normally ask on the podcast is, what advice would you give to someone starting out in health and safety now with all the life experience that you've got? Well, I mean, uh, I think it'd be a, it's a tough job, you know, and... But uh, I think you've got to, you know, stay true to yourself, but communicate with everybody, whether, you know, management and and your workers and, you know, and just just try to be honest and forthright as, as much as you can. And at the end of the day, if anything untoward goes, that you've stuck by your guns and you'll come out of it, you know, where... Clear conscience and that, you know, and it'll be, you know, because it, it, 
the, the biggest thing I found through paper and that, it's the people that survive, no survivors, but it's the survivors of the people that never, never made it, their relatives, you know, their, their mums and dads or their brothers and sisters, or, or, you know, specifically with paper, it was all men and the sons and daughters that, you know, that have lost, you know, their, their fathers, you know, and that's, that's the worst thing about these disasters and, you know, any fatalities at work, you know, it's, it's tough for them. And the offshore industry is very like the rail industry that I used to work in. Um, it's a very close knit family feel to the industry. When you're all sitting having the having the cup of tea in the tea shack and you're getting a bit of banter back and forward, that is like a big extended family. So losing a lot of those people that were close with you and good friends, it's really really strong. Yeah, that's right. Because you were almost well, you were spending six months with them. Yeah. A year, you know. Uh, Two weeks on, two weeks off. You know they were your your close companions for two weeks. Mm-hmm. I know a lot about everybody. Know a lot about each other. Just to go back to what you said about always having a clear conscience and not wanting by. We we shared a story when we we first started talking about putting this podcast together, and I showed you this, which is a little paperweight with some North Sea oil in it. And uh, the story behind that is a good friend of mine uh, that works in emergency planning in the nuclear industry, a guy called Colin Hargraves. Shout out to Colin if he's listening to the podcast. Gave us all one of these paperweights because we'd done a research project on Paper Alpha when we were at university together. And uh, we studied it for almost three months and put a, a presentation. We'd done it as a group project. And the group of people that I've done it with, I'm still close friends with now, and they're still some of the best safety professionals that I've had the pleasure of working with across my career. He sent us all a paperweight and a little scroll, Colin, and said, you might be faced with challenges across your career, and you might have pressure applied to you, and the opportunity to walk by. But we've all shared this experience, learning about Paper Alpha, and the trauma that the both the people that were killed and the survivors went through after the event and during the event. Keep this on your desk and if you ever feel like turning the other cheek or walking by, look at this and remind yourself why you do what you do. I thought that was quite a poignant story just to, to sum up on. Absolutely, absolutely, Blair. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Joe. I hope some people get in touch with you and get you out there doing some presentations. As I said, we've only scratched the surface with Joe's story and you can come out to any business and it doesn't necessarily need to be an oil and gas business. It could be construction, rail, any other big business. Get mine, get them doing a talk for you. Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks, Blair. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide.